Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick and this is episode number 139 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. How is everybody doing? Sorry for the delay here. Scheduling has been a been a little bit crazy here these past couple weeks, so I apologize, but trying to keep it all on track, but everybody's super busy. Uh, with gigs and traveling, myself included, and and uh, Adrian himself uh, also had a uh, pretty hectic couple weeks there. So I'm glad we got to work it out. Their new album, The Slow Can Ramblers, is fantastic. Going to hear a bunch of samples from that and some really cool stuff as well. If you're wondering what the samples of the songs are, you can always go to mandolinsandbeer.com and you can look at what songs are being clipped and featured on the episode. I want to thank my two newest patrons, Stuart and Johan. I hope I'm saying Johan properly. Thank you so much for signing up. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do it for as little as $1 a month at Patreon, www.patreon.com slash mandolins of beer. I'll be posting another bonus episode this week here uh, for the patrons as well, and that is for all the patrons. And if you're over a certain amount, you actually have access to 70 different video lessons too. So a little bit of a bonus, but you can always just follow me on the Instagram and Facebook or go to mandolinsabeer.com as well. All right, let's get into the sponsors, everybody. Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. You'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles, including Brazilian choro music with Ian Curry. Uh, from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots Music. The other instructors, Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Feibish, and Chad Manning. Are you kidding me? They're the best. Courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. Join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now and get your first month for free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com or download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. Ear Trumpet Labs, hand-built microphones in Portland, Oregon. Their mics are beautifully designed to have great feedback rejection for live use and the most natural tone you'll find for acoustic instruments. Check them out at eartrumpetlabs.com today. Ellis Mandolins, handcrafted mandolins designed and built in Austin, Texas. Speaking of building mandolins, have you ever thought about building your own mandolin? Well, if you have, it's easier than you think. Well, actually, that's probably overstating it. But it's going to be a lot easier if you go and get yourself a copy of the Ultimate Bluegrass Mandolin Construction Manual, now in its fourth edition. It's only $44.95. Roger Simonoff has put together the definitive construction manual. I mean, it's got an introduction by Stephen Gilchrist. Now, find out why all the best luthiers in the biz have a copy of these books on their shelves. It was originally published in 73, and now this new edition's got more than 330 photos and everything you need to know about building a Bill Monroe F5 style mandolin. You can get yourself a copy by just going to SimonoffBooks.com today. And clicking add to cart. Now I know some of us don't have the time to build mandolins, and if you're looking for mandolins, there's no better place to window shop than Elderly.com. Elderly Instruments is your trusted source for new, used, and vintage fretted and stringed instruments. From the experienced to beginner player, their vast selection of mandolins, guitars, banjos, ukuleles, and did I say mandolins? Include all of the accessories 
and books to go with them. All instruments are inspected and set up for easy playability, and their down-to-earth and knowledgeable staff are there to help. They're in their 50th year, family-owned and operated. They ship worldwide, and you can visit them anytime, like I said, at elderly.com, or give them a call at 517-372-7880. It's where I bought my first, I would say, professional-grade mandolin, and they were the best. All right, let's get into the episode with Adrian. This is a great one. Adrian's super nice guy. Um, the new album again, The Slow Can Ramblers, is available now. I highly recommend it. Let's get into the podcast with Adrian Gross. Cheers, everybody. Take me, break me, throw down the pieces like an old streetcar lullaby. So now I'd like to welcome to the podcast, mandolin player and brand new dad, brand new father, Adrian Gross. Adrian, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, very excited to be here. Um, This should be fun. I'm so excited to have you. And I really, really am grateful you're doing this because you've had had a bit of a hectic schedule the past two weeks. And the fact that you're squeezing me into that really, uh, I really appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's a... A mild way to put it, it's been kind of crazy. We can get into it all, but it's um, you know, it's been good, and I'm, and you know, I've been a big fan of this podcast since you came out. So it's oh, uh, thanks, man. It's fun to finally get on here and uh, you know, get my get my own episode out there. So yeah, yeah, I'm excited to have you. I remember we actually we talked on the phone. You had done the um project with Chris Cool, Avaline, the Avaline record. We had talked on the phone because we were going to do a podcast then, but then you're like, well, wait, you know, we were talking, you're like, we got a new record we're finishing up. I'm like, well, man, let's wait till your record's coming out <laughs> and let's do one yeah. for your record. Yeah. And uh, it came out last Friday, June 10th. Yeah. And uh, it's amazing, man. And, I, you know, I say that all the time when I when I do these podcasts, but I really, I really mean it. And what I love about your album is... I didn't come into mandolin necessarily as a bluegrass player right off the bat. I was a big, more like mm-hmm. a singer songwriter fan and, um, you know, and then stumbled across nickel Creek accidentally and just took me on this yeah. wild world. But what I love about your album too, is it's, it's a great mix of songwriting and you know, there's, there's different chords, <laughs> you know, there's more than, there's more than three chords in the songs too and, and great harmonies. So I love it. Cool. I'm glad to hear it. I mean, that's, that's good to hear because that was, in a way, what really, um, what really drove this record. Like, it came out, it was like, you know, this was our pandemic project, right? Every, or rather, you know, three musicians had something to be really focused on, and that was ours. And it was, um, the focus for this record for all of us wasn't just, like, instrumental. It wasn't just practicing the and it wasn't all that stuff. It was, it was kind of songwriting, which is funny to say because I'm, I would never call myself like a songwriter first and foremost, or even maybe a songwriter at all. But I, I guess I am someone who writes songs, and that 
that just became like our means of processing the world as it was going on around us. And, you know, it was a pretty intense time for a bunch of us in the band. And we could chat about that a little bit. But, um, yeah, I mean, I mean it, was a, it was a crazy time. And songwriting seemed to be the thing that helped make it make sense. And playing my mandolin did, too. It all was kind of... It was two sides of the same coin. I think that was a moment for me when writing tunes, writing songs, and just playing music, everything kind of felt the same, if that makes sense. It all kind of came together as like a, you know, little little music coping kind of thing. And uh, everything that came out of that, those those writing sessions made it on the record for us. So it kind of feels like the culmination of all that. And honestly, I'm just glad to get it out there because we recorded it in uh, about a year and a half ago. And then there were so many kind of delays because we couldn't really be together too much during COVID. Um, Frank is in Nashville. We're up here and, and things were pretty locked down up here for a long time. So just the process of getting it out and then releasing the singles took about a, maybe a year and four or five months from recording to releasing. So we're excited that it's out there. I'll put it that way. It's interesting. It, music, I think, not just for musicians, but I think for just mu- music fans during during covid it's one of those things that really, I think, got a lot of people through it. You know, it, and I mean, the ability for musicians to do live streams and get people's minds off things like that. I, you know, and so many great albums. And again, I'd said this a little bit before, but since people were locked down, musicians were going to be writing these albums and we were going to be flooded with some amazing music. There's like when crisis has happened in society and around the world, um, you know, out of that, like artists can be fueled in creative ways, you know, but there's also, um, there's something interesting that I was talking about with a friend the other day, which was, you know, when I was younger, I feel like I made music that was about music. If you kind of understand what I mean, I think all musicians are maybe guilty of that. I don't even mean guilty in a bad way. Like I loved music that was really, I don't know, it was musicy, it was geeky, it was heavier. Um, and maybe our record still is that to some people or whatever, but in, in at least you know, from my own perspective, to me, I felt like this record was a lot less about music and a lot more about life and a lot more about what people were living through and dealing with. And even the instrumental tracks, um, the way we played them, I mean, you know, I know that they have their own complexities and all that, but I still feel like somehow they had a bit of a, a little, you know, deeper meaning or some other things under the hood, as opposed to just writing cool tunes or as opposed to just trying to play your instrument as well as you could. That whole thing started mattering less and less. And um, anyway, all just got a little bit older, which, you know, maybe that helps. <laughs> yeah, maturity is a funny thing. <laughs> it's like, start, start realizing yeah, it's not it about can, as many notes uh-huh. if you don't need to. I mean, I love playing a bunch of notes. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but, you know. Yeah, I mean, we play mandolin, right? That's, yeah, uh, yeah exactly. Too, but, <laughs> yeah. yeah, just like, you know, I'm not saying, yeah, just like one step back. Like, not a hundred steps back, but just like one step back trying to see the forest from the trees a little bit. Um, it's kind of how this record felt for us. Yeah. And I really love this. The album's got a lot of really good hooks. You know what I mean? Like, it's like there's they stick with you. They're, they're 
sing-along-ish choruses, some of them, you know? I think it's it's a fun album. And again, that's sometimes right. sometimes like like bluegrass tunes, traditional bluegrass tunes don't necessarily have like huge choruses, you know what I mean? Or big catchy yeah. choruses that that you're singing along. You know, it's uh, and, mm-hmm. and your yours your album has a few of them. <laughs> Mickinope. I've been to St. Louis too. I've been all around the world. I've been over to your house. And you've been over sometimes to my house. I slept in your tree house. My middle name is Earl. A mind with the heart of a tone. A mind with the heart of a Yeah, I feel right. I mean, there's even, I, I know you mean, I always, when I first got into bluegrass, that was something I found so interesting. It was like the no chorus song, like so many of those Carter family songs. No chorus. And and there's a few on this record that don't have a chorus, but I know what you mean. Most of them still have some kind of hook you can latch on to, a repeated phrase or an instrumental hook. That wasn't like a conscious thing we were really planning. Um, it just kind of happened. I mean, the way that this record came about, we were all writing on our own. We weren't writing together because we weren't together at all like we were in three of us were or i mean really so our bass player alistair who had been with the band since we started right when COVID hit he decided that it was you know best for him to leave the band and i totally understand he had a kid he bought a farm um he you know his life was just going in a different direction than a touring musician and uh so you know all all the power to him and then it was just kind of left as us three as the core members who were going to be writing and two of us went to Ontario, which was one of the more locked down places, I think, in the world. I mean, not like Shanghai, but like in terms of just how long our lockdowns happened, it was people would really be weren't seeing each other much. Outdoors, yes, but it's cold here a lot of the time. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we definitely had jams in like December outside. It was like minus 10. It was kind of crazy. We all got very Canadian. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and Frank was in Nashville, right? So he was down there. So we, we definitely wrote on our own and then we kind of would do these um, kind of arranging sessions where we would just pass around tracks online like and use whatever software we had to build it up and try to get an arrangement and do it several times and then um, pretty much get like working arrangements. And then when we got together finally, then we would pretty much go through the working arrangements and just hash it out, try new things, try all the things in real time that you can't really do remotely. And um, so it's kind of interesting in a way. I feel like the record does have kind of a cohesive sound um, with all of our songwriting, which is interesting because we totally wrote it separately. But I think it just might be a bit of a testament to the fact that we are all going through stuff. And uh, when we showed up, the music reflected that. And then, of course, we do all the arranging. It's all collective. So I'm sure some of those hooks came together in those arranging sessions, you know, um, we were all kind of doing it together. And then our bass player, the new guy's playing with us, Charles James, he's an amazing bass player. And, and he's been with us now since kind of COVID hit. And, uh, he's, he's great in the arranging room too. So we were lucky to have some, some, you know, enough time to really be able, we had about a week of that. And then we just hit the studio. So by the time we hit the studio, we pretty much had the arrangement set and all those little hooks that you mentioned were all kind of there. And then our producer just kind of fine tuned some stuff with us, but. Yeah, that was that was kind of our, our process this time. That's great. Where did you record it at? We recorded at a place called Union Sound here in Toronto. Chris Tringer is kind of one of the owners and engineers. He's a great engineer. Not really a bluegrass guy, though he's done 
you know, he's done some folk stuff. He's done a lot of rock stuff. He's done a lot of like, I don't know, folky, rocky kind of crossover. Like, Bluegrass wasn't entirely alien to him, but it was enough. Just for example, Frank brought in a gourd banjo that he was going to maybe put one of his tunes on, and we ended up not doing it. But he brought in a, gourd, a fretless gourd banjo, and Chris, our producer, just endlessly made fun of him and referred to it as uh, his pumpkin. So <laughs> he's not like an old-time guy. We've <laughs> yeah. never seen a pumpkin banjo before. Um, but uh, I think actually having that perspective was, was pretty great, you know, a little outside perspective, um, not like just not a bluegrass guy, which I think we needed for this record, you know. You crapped the, the acoustic tones really are great on the album, though. Uh, you can definitely say that. I mean, your mandolin sounds are. And again, it, a lot of that is you. You're playing your technique. But I've definitely heard albums with great players where the mandolin sounds not great. <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh-huh. I mean, an engineer and yeah. a producer can can completely mishandle a mandolin and um, you got some great mandolin tone on this record. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, that's, I know that's such a, that's such a fear every time we get in the studio. Cause I've even heard great engineers get, you know, not so great mandolin tones on record, on, you know, like people who I know have a good track record. And then for some record, it just doesn't line up for some reason. Like it's hard to record acoustic instruments. There's so many, um, there's so many things that can go wrong. I feel. Yeah, and so many people are arrogant about it. You know what I mean? Like, ah, it's just an, you're an acoustic band. Oh, we could probably knock this out in like two sessions. A hundred percent. Yeah, I think you have to have totally. I think you got to be humble. You got to trust the musicians. Like, I think that the important things for engineers and producers is like, if the musician themselves doesn't think that the tone is really happening, um, you know, I have heard engineers, you know, give me the whole like, oh, I'm the engineer. Let me take care of this. It's like, yeah, but. I respect you, but I also, I've listened to my mandolin for like a million hours. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I, at least let me have an opinion on this, you know? Yeah. I, there's a great story about um, John Bonham, the the drummer from Zeppelin, who's yeah. a legendary hothead anyway, but they were in the studio. I don't, I don't remember what album, but you know, like they'd go back and they'd listen to the playback and he was like, nope, nope. And then he just drags the engineer in the room and he makes him stand in front of the drum sets and he plays. He's like, now make it sound like it sounds in here. <laughs> you know, and yeah. Apparently they must've figured it out. <laughs> they figured out. Oh my God. Yeah. Jeez. When the levy breaks, that's how it should sound. Oh, I mean, man, amazing. Right. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's so, so, so many of my favorite records are like, and this is subconscious. I never think about it at the time, but I look back and I realize so many, of my favorite records have such good sounds. Like one of the first records that got me really obsessed with the mandolin was just the tone poems, Grisman and Tony Rice.
mean, that might be the best sounding mandolin guitar record of all time. I don't know. That's a big statement to make, but I, I think it's at least in the running. Yeah. I mean, you can't, I, I don't know what's, but I don't know what you could say sounds better than it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that was so formative for me. I got it really, it was be my second grass album. And I just listened to that and I just, just like completely floored by how the mandolin sounded. Like, I think it was the tone of the mandolin on that record that, that's one of the things that really got me wanting to play the mandolin. And uh, then, of course, you realize that it's just David Grisman's hands that make it sound like that. But also, the way they record it is a like you feel like you're sitting in their living room. And it's just wild how huge it's, and it's so open. It's, um, yeah, you can see all the nuance of his, like, he's such a dynamic player, Grisman. Like, his louds and his quiets are so, you know, far apart. And all of that's picked up. And and the fact that the other thing I love about that is like he plays a different mandolin on every song, but you can every song, you know, it's Grisman. There's a, you, you, there's no like, mm-hmm. oh, who's playing this song? I mean, it's it, they have subtle differences. I mean, some people would, you know, probably be like eh, subtle differences. Are you kidding me? There's vast differences. But to me, I mean, it all I sounds know, like I, Grisman so and subtle, Tony playing. So subtle to me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I so. know it's a that's a great record when I have. um you know, you just start to wonder about your gear <laughs> and should I do this and that? And then you put that record out and you think, well, okay, like I don't think the average person or forget about the average person. I don't think me, if I didn't know it was a different instrument on every track, I think that's probably the last thing I would notice. I think it would take me a lot of listens to really know that, oh, this is this mandolin versus this. It just all sounds like Grisman and, and Tony Rice. And it's, and the instruments are so wildly different. And it, it's, it's, uh, it's just all their, their hands. Well, if that was your second album, what was the first? The records I got, I got first. I mean, when I was in, so I started playing, I'm 36. I started playing the mandolin, maybe. I should remember this. I started playing the mandolin and met my wife at the same week. Oh, get out of here, really? Yeah, I should wow. probably remember what year that was. Maybe, maybe I was 20, 19 or 20. Because I, I started playing bluegrass guitar, maybe 17, 18, 19, somewhere around there. And then I got into the mandolin when I was about 20 or so. Um, the first bluegrass records I got, well, when I was in high school and didn't really know anything about So I grew up in Montreal, which wasn't a big bluegrass town. I mean, as far as I know, I wasn't aware of bluegrass at all. And as far as you know, there wasn't any happening. There might have been a little bit, but, you know. But what Montreal did have, which is kind of famous for, was this, the Montreal Jazz Fest, which is this enormous like amazing jazz festival that takes over the city for 10 days every summer. And it's mostly just free music and you can go see insanely good music. Like I saw a three hour Pat Metheny concert for free there. Oh my gosh. And there was like a hundred thousand people. I mean, it was insane. Like he played. Yeah. So you could see that kind of stuff. You could see Mike Stern. You could see, I mean, I'm, there were paid concerts. Obviously I saw Bella Flack with the flat tones. Got to see Sonny Rollins. Got to see like, Herbie Hancock, like all these amazing musicians would come through. And um, we were kind of, I was a big fan of jazz. And my cousin, I had a few cousins who were older and they were kind of into like the jazzy bluegrass crossover stuff. So one of the first records I heard was like Strength in Numbers.
but I never thought of Strength in Numbers as a bluegrass band. They were just like another jazz band. Like I like Mike Stern, I like Schofield, I like Strength in Numbers. Like it was just part of the kind of fusion jazz thing that I was digging, um, you know? So Strength in Numbers was one of them. And then I was a big Grateful Dead fan. And that kind of got me into Grisman through that back door. Um, but the first real bluegrass records I got, Tone Poems was one of them, and that Tony Rice instrumental collection. Oh, yeah. Is that the one that's named after the, it's a serial number of his? Exactly. Yeah, loads of his records, and I got that, and that freaked me right out, because I was coming from an instrumental place. I was playing jazz guitar, and I liked, you know, electric jazz guitar. I always loved gypsy jazz. It's always been a huge, like, part of what I like to listen to, and I didn't quite play it. Like, the technique is so different, but I... I played like some like early jazz, we'll call it on guitar, like, you know, not quite gypsy jazz, but more old school kind of stuff. I always played a lot of like acoustic blues, a lot of acoustic kind of jazz stuff. Um, and so that Tony Rice record was a total gateway because I don't know if I was ready for like Bill Monroe and the way the vocal sounded and all that, but the way those musicians were playing, I mean, it was everything I loved about jazz and everything I loved about gypsy jazz and acoustic music just Plus everything I liked about the Grateful Dead and David Grisman just kind of like flipped <laughs> around. Like it was like this acoustic improv fiddle tune like magic that I totally freaked me out because when I heard it, I was so used to playing music and thinking like you could play a melody and then you would improvise on the chords. But this whole bluegrass fiddle tune thing of like improvising based on a fiddle tune and just spinning a fiddle tune around and around and around and keeping the melody going but totally also being free with your variations. That was like a huge revelation to me. Like when I listened to it, I just couldn't figure out like, are they thinking of the chords first, which they weren't. It took me a while to realize, no, they're just thinking <laughs> of the melody. But the chords are part of like that whole, just that whole process of fiddle tune improv was like a, almost like a eureka moment when I first heard it and then had a bit of understanding of what they were doing, but really not. Like that freaked me out. And then I got the first Norm Blake and Tony Rice do a record. And that is still like, I listen to that record all the time. And I, I, I was so obsessed with that record. And, um, you know, I still have no idea how on that Thriller's Dram Whiskey Before Breakfast, the way Norm Blake plays rhythm on mandolin with that kind of click sing. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I still have no idea how he does that. And I tried to figure it out and I just kind of gave up. And this is when I first got a mandolin. I was like, oh, that sounds like a, I just assumed that was like one of the ways people played mandolin rhythm. Like that kind of click strum. I can't even describe it, but if you've heard that track. Yeah, I'm going to drop it in right here. Yeah, Norm Blake playing rhythm on Whiskey Before Breakfast and Children's Tramp. It is so, it's so great. Norm Blake is such a genius. He's my favorite. And nobody plays like him. And learning, trying to figure out anything from Norm Blake, it's hilarious. It's like, uh, he's my favorite, and I feel like the stuff I learned from him is not even that usable. It's so specific to him. <laughs> right. <laughs> he's like my favorite. I think he might be my favorite bluegrass musician, and maybe the hardest one to steal licks from. For sure. You For know, sure, like, man. We um, what I did a live stream with uh, Paul Glass, Billy Bright, 
Kim Warner and one of the songs that came up. So we all had like an idea of what we wanted to maybe jam on. So everybody felt comfortable was New Brick Road. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Cool. I was like, what? What is <laughs> it was like the hardest thing to learn at the for whatever reason. You know, it was just like I can't put a finger on why it was so hard, but it was just like, uh, yeah, I was just so exactly. intimidated by it. That sums up. Normal. Like that was probably my fourth like bluegrass record I got, which I mean, I, it's not even bluegrass, I guess. But that Natasha's Waltz, that like 20 tracks, like mandolin CD, which I later figured out is actually kind of like compilation e from like three three norman blake records essentially but um anyway that record is like my desert island one every mandolin student i have i make them listen to that record um like every track on that album is amazing and uh that got me pretty obsessed with the mandolin just the way that that album sounded natasha's waltz um i had never heard a mandolin orchestra like that before and i had never i don't know i never heard songwriting like fiddle tune songwriting the way that they write tunes totally totally blew my mind it still does that record is wow yeah yeah it's amazing uh, it's amazing it it freaks me out and um and the sound like the way they captured the sounds of those instruments you hear everything um so those were some ones i got that got me really excited and then i also got i started playing them getting really into the mandolin right before punch came out and i kind of learned who chris Thiele was it was kind of a great time actually to get like jazzed about the mandolin because i got into I knew who Feely was, and he was such a big inspiration into getting really into the mandolin because I, I just said you know, you know I'll just join the, the list of people who had never heard a mandolin played like that before, right? So, <laughs> right. Uh, and I heard him, I heard not all who wander are lost, and I heard not you know the, the how to grow a, uh, what was it called the how to grow a band? Oh, how to grow a yeah. woman from the from the ground. From the ground, yeah, yeah, yeah. The the non Punch Brothers kind of Punch Brothers record. I heard that one, and I heard yeah, not all who, not all who wander lost, which was great because it really connected connected with me like in like an instrumental music way. But I also then started hearing about the press about this Punch record, and kind of the record hadn't come out yet, and I just got really excited like oh like like Sealy's doing something really big, and I happened to be learning the mandolin. And it was just a great time because I got super excited about this record coming out. And I remember going to the CD store near my house on the day it came out. I bought <laughs> yeah. it, took it home and listened to it. And it totally blew my mind. It was incredible. And uh, so that record was a big, you know, a big influence, but a big inspiration for sure, just in terms of how much you could do with, you know, bluegrass quintet and how well you could play the mandolin specifically. Um, probably, yeah. It's probably like the first bluegrass record. I got. And then Stanley Brothers was always there. I should not forget that. Like the Stanley Brothers were the bluegrass band that really I loved at the beginning and really connected with me. And I just had like the, the Mercury recordings and a bunch of compilations. And and that was um, just the way they sang. Brought me right down. And I got Cry from the Cross, that Ralph Stanley Gospel record. With Keith Whitley and Skag, that became like an all-time favorite still. Like, yeah, I could just keep going. But those were the records that got me in. And that was a cool record because that got me really into like the whole, you know, vocal side of bluegrass, like how powerful the singing could be. 
and just how much it c- c- connect with people. And uh, yeah, those are big ones for me. So at that point, because you're getting, because I'm assuming because you teach at a at a, a university, is it? The, they call me university. Is that what they call it up there? I do. Yeah, it's university. I mean, I'm I'm not doing it much anymore, but I am. You know, yeah, like a. I was just teaching mandolin at this university called Concordia, which is actually in Montreal. I live in Toronto. It was remote. But I'm taking a bit of a step back from that now, though I think if people sign up, actually, you know, if anyone signs up for a mandolin at Concordia, I'll be the teacher still. Oh, cool. So anyone listening who wants to study, you can hit up Concordia. But um, You also teach private Zoom lessons, I should say, as well. So people, if they want to take I lessons, do, yeah. yeah, they can sign up for there. Well, I, I guess what I was going to ask was, um, so then it, did you make a conscious decision? Because obviously it's not like you're pretty into jazz guitar and bluegrass guitar at that point. Was it a pretty conscious decision to like, oh my gosh, I'm just going to focus on mandolin? Like, That's a good question. I mean, so I got a mandolin in my, I did like a four year like jazz guitar thing, um, a place called Humble College in Toronto, which was great. You know, I mean, there's a lot of pros and cons to that, I would say, but I think overall it was good. Um, but uh, then I got a mandolin in my third out of four years. So I got a mandolin, got pretty upset. I was still playing quite a lot of bluegrass guitar, but I just got totally obsessed with the mandolin. Like the mandolin just made sense to me. It felt intuitive. It just clicked with me for whatever reason. I loved how it sounded. I loved playing it. I couldn't put it down. And I just kind of slowly got more into mandolin than guitar. I got more into, even for bluegrass, I kind of stopped playing much bluegrass guitar. And then, by my fourth year, and then by the time school was done, I just started gigging a lot of mandolin. And I was still playing guitar, for sure. Like, I, there was a lot of crossover. I mean, I still do play guitar, but the mandolin pretty quickly became my focus. I just got obsessed with trying to figure it out. And um, and then that just became my, my real direction I was heading into. And I'm definitely now, these days, firmly in the mandolin camp. I have a mandolin, which I love. I play the mandolin all the time, too. So... You know, I like fifth. It makes sense to me. Yeah, the same same with me. It's it's weird that that happens. Like, yeah, I um, I mean, I played guitar way way before I ever got a mandolin. And it's a okay guitar player, but for whatever reason, man, like you said, like mandolin just clicked. Like suddenly, it was like complex things laid out to me. Like, oh, I could play a harmonic minor on this i yeah. couldn't do that on guitar today <laughs> you know what i mean like yeah totally i, I think i mean no i i, I think I'm maybe in one one sense like just different instruments connect with different people like you know some people just pick up a five-string banjo and as much of it's such a challenging instrument uh it just connects with them but for me the mandolin like just the way it yeah like you're saying like all the scales like you're on a can play a one octave scale on two strings and on a guitar a major and a minor scale feel so radically different they don't really feel related to each other they're just like different things whereas on a mandolin you're very aware like oh you just changed one note and now you have a melodic minor scale one note same fingerings it's super logical it's very intuitive i can see why so many kids learn violin like i can understand how even from like a theory perspective and it's funny like reading music is like so easy on a mandolin like guitar i read music since i was eight years old and I think I'm a better reader on mandolin it's just intuitive especially in first position like yeah mandolin makes sense good instrument great instrument. yeah absolutely and then um you guys the the slow cam ramblers you guys have been around the first album was 2012 it's like going on 10 years here huh I guess it would be 10 years yeah about 10 years I mean we just started as like a local bar band like we just 
were um, like I went to school with Daryl, our guitar player, and I lived with Alistair, the bass player, or our first bass player, I should say. And Alistair was a bike mechanic, and he knew this guy named Frank, who was also a bike mechanic. And we were just picking tunes in our garage, just blew it. Now, none of us really played bluegrass or knew what we were doing or had much experience with it, but <laughs> right. it was a, we were really into it, you know. What we uh, lacked in talent, we made up for an enthusiasm. So uh, we were doing that, and then he said, oh, let me get this banjo player to come play with us, and he showed up, and he ended up being great. And uh, then we got a local gig. For the first while, we played a lot. Like We had a local gig at a little bar in Toronto, and then we had a monthly gig at another bar. So that was like five gigs right there. And then we started doing a lot of one-off gigs. And then we got a bunch of weddings. It was a, maybe, maybe it's still the case, but like the whole bluegrass for a wedding band became trendy. Oh, yeah. I got one this weekend. <laughs> it's not a bad thing. I mean, it was great for us. I mean, and I, I shouldn't say it. Too. I think it still is. We got off the wedding still. And, you know, but um, it kind of started around there. We noticed it. So between that and other gigs, like we were often playing whatever three four a lot of a lot per week you know what i mean like tons of gigs per week and that just became our focus through doing it so much because we were just super busy with it and then you know how it is you got a bar gig someone says oh can i buy your cd you say well we don't have a cd because we play at this bar and that's all we do <laughs> right. and we haven't written our own yeah and we were just playing bill monroe songs and stanley brothers songs and Ricky's. oh you know we, we were, i was a big fan of the first kentucky thunder record um, Bluegrass Rules, that was a big influence on me. He's one of my all-time favorite mandolin players, like just incredible mandolin player, Ricky Skaggs. And, uh, you know, just the way his eighth notes feel, like the, it's so bouncy. And um, so Bluegrass Rules, we took songs off. We would do songs off that record, off the Charleston record, which I guess was recorded in your town. Yeah, in my t- at the, and I just played that Charleston Music Hall. That's where it was recorded, That's too. Wild. Yeah. So that's cool. amazing you play there because that that live record had a big impact on me. I mean, it was just so high. It's just like high octane, kick ass. It's such a great record and such a good sounding live record. So we were doing tunes off those records, and then we were doing tunes off of, um, yeah, like all the classic stuff, Stanley. But we're big fans of Dave Evans. Who who was that? Dave Evans is this amazing singer banjo player from Ohio and Kentucky. He passed away a few years ago, but. I feel like I'm all about Dave Evans' uh, appreciation spreading. He's lay down that cane and start moving. One of my, he's kind of like a, he's saying, you know, he sang with Larry Sparks. That was probably his biggest gig or that I know of. He's saying he play with Larry Sparks, but just in terms of, he's just like a force of nature on a banjo and singing. And uh, yeah, go check out some Dave Evans if you're listening to this. Um, trying to spread awareness for him. He did, he doesn't get his due and he, he should. He's incredible. So we would take tunes from him and, uh, you know, and all the classic stuff like, you know Jimmy Martin, just all this stuff. We were just trying to figure out how to play bluegrass, and and um and then like I said, people start asking for your CD, and then you realize, well, if you're gonna make an album, you should probably have some original music or at least some cool arrangements and some cool interpretations of others. So we just started to kind of be a band in this super kind of haphazard way, 
it was not planned. It was just like, okay, let's do this for this and let's work on some tunes to make a record. And then we made a record and then started touring and, uh, yeah, this was just our fourth record just came out. We've kind of been on the road since. So I'm at home now because I just had a kid. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Did, did Thomas Castle play with those guys this weekend? He is. He's, he, yeah, he's, I'm lucky to have amazing. Oh my God. I'm so lucky to have like the best subs right now. So he's <laughs> subbing in for me. They just got back from the Yukon, like in the Arctic in Canada. I, I bet they had a lot of fun up there. It was pretty cool. So they were up there and, um, and then Casey Campbell is going to be subbing in for me for some other tours coming up too. So nice. another, another, another um, great player. Oh yeah. It's like, um, I'm just, I'm glad that the band could find such good players to, you know, like if I can't do the shows, I'm like, well, I at least want someone like, you know, good than me or better than me. So like other guys, like, you know, <laughs> right, get, right. Get, get some high, some high flute man players. And, um, I was just so glad they agreed to do it. So, um, for any Ramblers fans out there, you know, I think it'll still be, uh, the mandolin players you're going to see will be a treat. So, and, um, and then, yeah, I'm taking some time off the road right now, but you know, besides that, like we've been touring pretty heavily for the past, uh, better part of a decade, obviously COVID notwithstanding, took a little bit of breather there, but yeah, that's been kind of been our main focus. And it's been, that's also how I just got so into the mandolin. Cause I was just on tour all the time playing mandolin. And it was just, uh, you know, it kind of just became my focus so quickly. So, and you can literally take it anywhere and play it anywhere. M- I mean, much to people's oh, chagrin, I'm sure sometimes. But like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. Thanks for bringing your mandolin. I was that guy. I was I was the worst. When we first started playing, I was so obsessed with practicing mandolin, and we lived in a tiny apartment. And I can't believe the stuff I did. Like looking back, like man, I was such a twenty year old. Like. We lived in a tiny apartment and we didn't, our neighbors downstairs hated us for playing music. They really, really hated us. And for all sorts of reasons, they had all sorts of issues. Uh, the guy was totally an odd guy. He was one of these guys who, he didn't work, he made his living, and he made a lot of money playing online poker. Oh, really? But he just kind of like, yeah, which is like power too, that's pretty cool. But he kind of <laughs> lived in this cave below us with the blinds closed all day, just like stewing about how much he hated us and playing online <laughs> poker. So I didn't really want to practice in the house often, so I would, the laundromat down the street, I would take my laundry and I would just bring my mandolin. You have to kill two or three hours. So I just practice mandolin in the laundromat. I'm sure I drove everybody insane. Like they probably thought, who is this guy? And people, people lived above the laundromat. So, I mean, I can't even imagine what I did to their quality of life. Anyway. If I hear rawhide one more time. <laughs> I will, yeah, yeah. Oh, some guy once came down and told me to stop. It was like, because it was a 24-hour laundromat, and I'm such a night owl. I'm sure I was there at midnight just raging the mandolin, doing my laundry. Because no one was there, I figured this is a great place to play. Like, it was so reverberant. I loved how it sounded. And I didn't realize there were apartments on top. Because it kind of looked like it was bordered up from the outside, but there was like a back entrance to apartments, which you couldn't see from the street. I didn't know about. So I would go in there and practice it like, you know, 11 at night, midnight, did my laundry. And one guy, some guy came down. He was like, he kind of gave me, he was like, he's like, people live here, you have to stop. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, yeah, I I was like, I agree with you. It's like, I'm not going to argue, like, fair enough. But it was across the street from a park, so I just went to the park and I would just practice till like two in the morning. I was, I was so obsessed. It's all I wanted to do. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and and no, a little bit earlier, you, you mentioned, like you said, you didn't you don't really consider yourself a songwriter, but you wrote five of the tunes on this album and they're great tunes. Um, no, and, thank you. Yeah, yeah, man. Two instrumentals 
Harefoot's Retreat, yeah. Snow Owl, and then the three vocal yeah. tunes. Now, do you sing? Because in, in the at least you is just mandolin. I don't. I know. Yeah, no, I don't. I'm not a singer. Um, I'm not a singer, but I I do enjoy writing songs for other people to sing. So, is it? Do you do you yeah. do you picture somebody in particular singing them when you're writing them, or do you just kind of write them knowing kind of like the, the what the band does? Yeah, that's such a good question. I mean, I've kind of thought about that a little bit, but I think with this record, I didn't because the writing happened so separate from the band. Like we really weren't getting together. And I think that when I wrote those songs, we were probably planning to make a record, but like it wasn't concrete yet. Like I wasn't maybe, I wasn't like writing songs to the album. For example, I was just like writing songs to just, you know, just to do it. So I didn't quite think of who I was going to write it for. Though, I mean, the two singers in our band, it's really, you know, Daryl and Frank, both singly in the band. So I probably had some inkling that one of them would be singing it if it made sense as a Ramblers tune. Um, and uh, I think once I wrote it, though, like once the song, I'd say, yeah, I would say I wrote the songs just to write them. But once they were written and I spent some time with them and, you know, I made mock-ups myself of myself singing them and all that type of thing. I think once I did that, I got a sense of who I thought would be a better fit for each tune just based on the range or the phrasing of the melody or the way the rhythm of the words kind of lined up. I think that kind of helped dictate who would sing what tune to me. And, uh, and then I, you know, I kind of recommended it to the guys in the band, but also I was very much like you guys are the singers. Like you have to connect with the song, like it's up to you guys. And then some of them, they sing, you know, we do a lot of like duet singing in the band where they'll just sing pretty much the whole tune together too. So that's a cool, um, I love that. I love that. You know, it's, I'm a huge, um, Leuven Brands, oh, Leuven Brothers fan. Like when I first got into Bluegrass, they were also one of the acts I got really into. Like the heart, it, it so almost makes you not want to sing harmonies because you're like, well, I don't know how you're going to get better than these guys. <laughs> no, like it freaked me out. Like someone gave me three Leaving Brothers CDs who was, you know, older than me and, and had been to Bluegrass for a while. And I just played those CDs. Like, yeah, it was just so much like just magic in the way they sing. And um, that was like something that like just, immediately connect with me and i love the mandolin playing i love the mandolin tones on those records have you have you read that book by chance no you know what it's on my shelf do you know chris cool he's a fellow bluegrasser you might have checked out chris cool he just gave me that book and it's i've been meaning to read it it's, it's a great book and a quick read oh, too it's a yeah, real easy yeah. read uh, i'm looking forward to diving into it i mean and just the way they sang like there's a certain I, I always call it like a buzz like they're so in tune that you hear all the overtones start to emerge and all those crazy Crazy things happen when people sing that in tune together. The phrasing, the way that they're just so lined up, like it's just, it's incredible. Yeah, that really connected with me when I first got into bluegrass. I, I always loved duo bluegrass records. Like I got into that. I got really into the Skags and Rice record. That was one that I got really into. And uh, I'm trying to think of other duo. I mean, yeah, the Blake and Rice, Skags and Rice. Tony and Rice. There you go. There's a theme here. You take any mandolin <laughs> player who's really good. Sticking with Tony Rice. 
going to have a good record. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about mandolins. Um, I know what was your what was your, yeah. what's your what's your main axe? Yeah, it's a main axe is a Stiver, like a kind of F five style. Um, yeah, I love. I mean, I really love it. I got it at a store called Bernenzio Music, which is in Rochester, upstate New York. And I've only ever played one other Stiver that someone brought to me at a show, and only for like a minute. So I, it's kind of the only Stiver that I know. So I don't. But I love it. I mean, it, it's it's really loud. It plays super easy. It's kind of great sound. It makes sense for me. Um, you know, like it just kind of yeah. When I first picked it up, I I knew it was um, the one I was gonna have to grab. So yeah, I've loved that man. It's been my main thing since like 2014. Oh wow, cool. And yeah, I play it all the time. Um, yeah, it's just a great kind of all around mandolin. Like it's great for bluegrass. It really has a pretty bluegrassy sound, but it's also great for, you know, you can kind of do anything on it. It just plays so easy. Right up and down the neck, it's super balanced across the neck, which is nice. All the strings, all the different ranges kind of speak in a similar way, which is nice. Um, you know, I think that's a big thing for mandolins for me, like having either a really consistency across, I mean, having consistency across the neck and the strings is really helpful. I think if it, mandolins are not, some are not, and maybe that could be a good thing if you really know the mandolin and can know what to do with it. Right, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? But that takes a real finesse. And this one, you know, it does not require that much thinking. Like, it's just plays easy up and down the whole range. Um, I've had a little bit of work done, but really not much done to it. I kind of just picked it up and, and that was it. What's the, what's the weather like? Do you have to worry about humidity and keeping it uh, humidified and stuff in Canada with a... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Toronto's climate's like kind of, you know, northeast city, like, you know, if you're familiar with, like, similar like New York or Boston, like, the summers are crazy hot, like, we get 100 degrees here with lots of humidity, like, pretty frequently, but then winters are cold, like, winters are, you know, sub-zero and uh, often snowing and the heat's on, blasting dry air into the house, so humidifying it is important, I wish I was better at that, but, um... And then touring with it is tough in the winter because, like, those little case humidifiers don't do nearly as much. I find as a room humidifier. Right, sure. And you're flying with it and all that. So, you know, but it's, like, it's a pretty resilient mandolin. Like, it has no cracks, knock wood. You know, it's done well throughout all those brutal Canadian winters. Um, I think one thing, I mean, the luthier himself is in kind of northern Pennsylvania, as far as I know. So, you know, it was built in a fairly similar climate to here. Maybe that has something to do with it. I've heard people say that, but I'm not sure if that's true or not. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, it, it's okay. It, it's okay. It does. I've had other instruments that were much more finicky that did get cracks, that didn't deal with the dryness as well. This is kind of a workhorse. It doesn't seem to be bothered too much by that stuff. And you also have a mandola. I have a mandola. Yeah, it's a 1917, you know, Gibson round hole oval mandola, which is um like teardrop mandola, which is one of my favorite. It might be like, I think in terms of like construction and sound and all that, like maybe like the best instrument that I own. Like it's just such a good instrument. And it, like it, it plays so modern. It sounds so modern, but also so old school. You can do anything with it. It's hard for me to believe that it was built 104 years ago. No, 105 years ago. Well, it's 2022. Um, yeah, Gibson really nailed it back then. It's an awesome yeah, I just kind of had it in my head that I wanted a mandola. I don't really know why. I just kind of figured it would be a cool thing to get. And uh, we were playing Wintergrass, and I just uh, headed over to Dusty Strings in Seattle. 
and they just had this. Yeah, 1917 Gibson Mandela consignment, and I just took it home with me. And uh, I played that a ton over the pandemic because for solo playing, it was just so rich and had so much body. And that low string really changes the whole character of it. But it was so great for writing, so great for playing around the house. I do a lot of like gypsy jazz and kind of like early jazz stuff, and that's going to be an act for that. I'm going to do like a local gypsy jazz gig. It's pretty much all Mandela for me these days. On oh, that, cool. Yeah, and it's good for old time. I love playing old time on it as a rhythm instrument. There's some great video of you with Chris Cool playing is it out like outdoors, and you have that mandola. Yeah, that was did a few of those, and that was me and Chris were playing some duo stuff in the summer there, and um, yeah, the mandola was perfect. Like mandola and claw hammer banjo, we did a bunch of that, and that's such a nice duo. The mandola, you know, it's low enough to have a bit of a guitar rhythm sound but also mandolin-y enough that I can still do all my mando stuff. And I find I can kind of play rhythm and lead at the same time in a way with it, in a way that lines up well on mandolin for me. And, uh, and I also just love playing boomchuck, like guitar style, old time rhythm on it. Yeah, it feels really good for that. Um, yeah, so I'd say for like old time, I take that out and the whole, all the early jazz stuff I do, I, I do a lot on that. And for bluegrass, it's fun. Uh, if I'm going to a jam and I don't think there's going to be a guitar player there, like I had a jam the other day with, five string banjo and fiddle. I'll, I'll bring the mandola too. It's really fun to fill that in. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, I love playing it. And then I go back to the mandolin to bluegrass. It's like, oh yeah, okay. There's a reason that mandolin is a bluegrass instrument. Like it's just so easy compared to mandola for that. Just cut. <laughs> yeah, for you sure. Know? Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, it's like they can, the gloves come off. Um, so those are my two main, I, actually I got something else cool, but yeah, those are the two main ones that I mostly play. And, uh, I picked up, I was at Grunz not long ago in Nashville, and I picked up a Gibson A-Style. Oh, cool. Round hole, pure drop, 1921. Nice. But I really love, I've been playing that a lot. I um, I was searching for like that, for like that kind of era, like early 20s, late teens, Gibson. Um, and um, I, uh, I had had a few good experiences playing those, like I guess A4, no, yeah, A4 models. With a round hole there. And um, then I tried to find the right one. I tried about 10 of them. I found a bunch up here. So they're called Folkway Music in Canada. It's really good. They had a bunch. And then when I went down to Nashville, I just took a day. I went to like, you know, went to all the usual places. I went to Grunz and, and Carter's and a few other sh- shops. And I tried probably about almost like a dozen of them over the course of a week. And they were all so different, which is pretty interesting. Like the mid range was in them was all voiced super differently. Some were very compressed and had a loud kind of punchy sound, but it didn't bloom. I tried some that had no bass, like the low G string barely rung at all. I tried some with the low G was overpoweringly kind of woofy and loud. I couldn't get over how different these mandolins were from each other. And then this one I found, and it was like, just right. Like it was like, the mid range was like smooth and not super compressed. And the low end had like a good thud, which you want from a round hole. Like, you know, that round sound hole, just gives you so much like bass resonance. They're so fun. To, they're so fun to play too. I have, well, I'm looking at mine right here. I have a, a one pumpkin top that, uh, that I just love, man. Yeah. That's kind of my arsenal. Those three and the round hole ones been fun. Like, you know, it's the kind of thing I put on the house and then like go out and grab the, uh, I got the F5 for I haven't I've tried to take the A out on a couple gigs but yeah it's tough to get like a lot of the gigs I can't really play around a mic 
and the clip down mm-hmm. mic just picks up too much bottom end from from the yeah. A model, I think. And so I've tried it a couple times, but it's just it's too much work to uh, for you know for nobody's gonna care. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's like those sort of gigs, but uh, but for around the house, I mean, it's my out of the case mandolin all the time. Do you find it in, like influences how you play like a little differently? For sure, for sure it does. I mean, I definitely play um, more. I don't want to say pretty sounding things, but just, you just have such, so, so much more sustain. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And just like the, uh, it really lends itself. It really makes me want to play like old timey stuff as well. Like kind of strummy yeah. and melody at the same time. It's just, yeah, mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah. That's definitely what it, it, it's open strings. All of a sudden have such a different character with a round down hole. Like, you know, you don't really find yourself wanting to play like classic Monroe chop chords on it. Like just the open strings just kind of give you so much more. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I need to focus on now that you're saying that and I'm staring at it and it's staring back at me. I really need, <laughs> I know. You know, I'm going to try to drag it out here and one of these gigs coming up and just figure it out ahead of time. Cause I really do love it and it does really play. I mean, most of the stuff I do around town here in Charleston's acoustic duo. So it would really, would really, uh, be cool to have on a bunch of the tunes we do so yeah that's all, i love that i mean it's it's interesting like it, i find it it impacts how i play rhythm differently you know like a lot more open chords a lot more bass runs if i can get away or just even the way I, even if i'm shopping it just has a different character you just play a little differently and you want it's a little sweeter it's less you don't get that kind of aggressive bluegrass thing it doesn't really make sense. You know, it's just like, yeah, now we'll bring the temperature down a little bit. It's not a bad thing. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> For us bluegrassers who are always like running on full tilt. Yeah, yeah. I definitely uh, uh, am guilty of that a lot, so. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, that's the whole reason we got, like, you know, that's what, if you get into bluegrass at some point, you get pretty excited just by how high octane it is, right? Oh, my God. If you could play, if you could play, <laughs> uh, if you could play uh, Baltimore Johnny by uh, you know, by Ronnie McCurry yeah, at full at hundred yeah. percent, just like he did. You, you would do that. <laughs> and that, oh man, that's such a good example. Like, that's I think perfect F five man. Absolutely. Know? Yeah. Like, yeah, if you could play like that, why wouldn't you play like that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's exactly. I mean, yeah. He's one of my favorites for just his sound. Like that's it's so just good. It just sounds like bluegrass. It's all there. And such a nice guy. Yes, yeah. Yeah. He's the total package, man. <laughs> He's so great. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad there's still, like, yeah, he's such a perfect example. So he's, that's his, he had, totally has his own unique voice, and he has his own kind of modern way of playing it, but it's just so rooted in the old school stuff. That it's just such a great way to kind of bridge, bridge those worlds. I can't think of almost anyone who does it as well as him. Yeah, me either. And uh, what I love too, I saw the, uh, I got to see the Travel McCurries. It might have been one of the first live shows I might have went to post COVID. Oh, cool. I mean, they were doing like an outdoor gig here in Charleston. And what I also loved about them is, um, like they did Baltimore Johnny, but then he gave me a copy of the set list after the gig. And like the songs that were on the set list, I think they maybe played like three of them. They were just kind of like they started off and then they were just kind of like, hey, yeah, let's do this. <laughs> I'm like, I love that. Right. <laughs> it's just like whatever yeah. you're feeling. It was amazing. That's awesome. Who was playing guitar with him? Uh, Cody Kilby. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a hell of a band right there. Oh, my gosh. Uh, un- I mean, so good. unbelievable. Yeah. So I got a, I got a time for a couple more questions here. And um, again, I. 
I appreciate you taking the time. I mean, what a crazy time yeah. for you, an exciting time. And I really appreciate you carving a little niche out of your day for this because oh, I know you got some important stuff going on. But um, so, yeah, so, so the first one is going to be if you had 10 minutes a day to work on something to get better, what would you work on or what would you recommend someone who only has 10 minutes a day to play mandolin? Because, again, like, you know, like you and I are super fortunate in the fact that we can spend a little bit more than 10 minutes a day playing mandolin. There's a lot of people out mm-hmm. there who can't. But, you know, I'm a firm believer. And if you have 10 minutes, you can definitely get better, even if it's only at 10 minutes. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you asked it that way because I, I totally agree. I think that um, I have a lot of students who sometimes like the just the amount of practice that they think they should do is so much that it almost stops them from doing anything. Totally. Like, like, I've had students that kind of, ah, if I can't practice for an hour a day, I don't even pick it up. I'm like, no, no, it's the opposite. Like, I'm like, practice for five minutes, one minute, or just pick it up. Like, you know what I mean? Just like pick it up and play a few notes i think you can get better in any amount of time i think for me there's kind of two things that i would do the first thing i would i would just <clears throat> learn fiddle tunes by ear <clears throat> that's like the thing that i think has the biggest impact on me and the more you like you can't do enough of it like just keep building repertoire and keep learning fiddle tunes by ear and forget about tab and forget about all that other stuff and just get your ear working i think that's because you're working on your ear you're working on your chops because you're working on fiddle tunes and you're building like vocabulary and repertoire in, we'll say it's bluegrass, but you know, this is not just bluegrass. If you're playing Celtic music, if you're playing jazz, whatever you're doing, just learn the repertoire by ear. And that is the window into the music. You can't know enough tunes. All my favorite musicians know thousands of songs, thousands of tunes. And that like, you know, that journey never ends, right? You're always learning new tunes. So I'd say that's like number one. Do you have a tip like a do you have a tip for people to to learn by ear that might help them out? I know a lot of people I think get intimidated um to learn by ear and it's again and I am like when I start playing mandolin if it wasn't for tabs I wouldn't I I would have been completely lost. And so I definitely relied on tabs a ton and and occasionally I'll look at them but man nothing sticks more when you learn a song than if you just learn it by ear. Because you're working it out, you're figuring the parts out, and then you retain that, and then you move on to the next part. And you, you know what I mean? It's like, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, the, the, ear, the brain's working, the hands are working, the ears are working. You retain it more, as opposed to something I might have just grabbed a tab of and been like, oh, I need to, I want to work on this real quick. I, I probably couldn't play that song, but I could play something I learned by ear um, 10 years ago and maybe played twice and be like, oh, yeah, I remember this. Oh, man, like, I couldn't agree more like that retain thing is like the whole name of the game and i learned it the hard way like i didn't really i didn't think i had a good ear as a kid and i think because of that i didn't really work on developing it i was super intimidated by it and then when i got into mandolin and bluegrass i almost like decided like i'm only going to play by ear like this will be almost like an experiment like can i even do it you know i never really had teachers that made me do it when i was younger and i never had the wherewithal i guess myself to try it i mean i i improvised like i was big into jamming playing jam bands, we improv. There's a lot of ear playing, but I didn't learn someone else's melody by ear myself very often. So, and then I would find like, if I learned a tune from a piece of sheet music or a tab, like, yeah, I could play it, but it would just go away right away. I, I wouldn't retain it at all. But if I learn a song by ear, it's like, you almost can't forget it. Even if you want to, like, it's just in there. I'm, I'm a huge fan of the program transcribe spelt just transcribe exclamation mark. It's like, uh, 
free for the third, for anyone who wants to check it out. I think it's like free for a month. I think I paid 50 bucks for for life. And it's the software that I use by far the most. I'm a big fan of like, just take the tune. You, it's so easy. Just drag and drop it. And then you can just loop sections or slow it down. I know you know this. I'm just saying if anyone's listening. No, I agree. Do you use it too? No, uh, it yeah, is, It's literally... The first thing, every time I get a new laptop, it's the first thing I re-download. I bought it when I first started playing mandolin. You know, you have like the lifetime yeah. license. And it's the uh-huh. first program on every computer I re-download. Every time. It's like, a, it's like, it's so important. I'm the exact same way. It's like, if I'm going to learn a tune, I just open that up. And then, you know, you can, um, you can just loop sections so easily and slow it down. And I would say like, don't be afraid to slow it down. Like, sure, at a certain point, yeah, it's fun to try to learn it up to tempo, but there's no reason to do that at first. Like, I mean, maybe there's, I don't know. It's good for your brain, I suppose. But for me, it's so intimidating. To learn Baltimore Giant by ear is hard. So, <laughs> yeah. like, just slow it down. Make it 50% and loop the first two notes until you get them. And figure out what key you're in, if it's major or minor. And then just slowly piece together phrase by phrase. I learn a phrase slowly by ear and I loop it and I play it a bunch of times. So I got it. Then I learn the second phrase slowly by ear, you know, 50% tempo, whatever you got to do, loop it, play it till it feels natural. Then put those first two phrases together. Okay. You got a bar Then build the whole first four bars. And just, I would just do it in small chunks, just learn by ear really slowly. And then I think the key is once you have that, make sure you like play it a bunch right away. Because if you do that process and I found this out though, you know, through so much trial and error. If I do that process on like a Monday and I don't play the song again until Friday, I have to do it again. Mm-hmm. I don't retain it. But if I do that process and then I just play it every day, then by Friday it's nailed and it's like totally in the bank and I'll never forget it. So learn a tune by ear slowly and then just play it a bunch right away. Um, I think it's a big, big part of learning tunes by ear. That's kind of the one. And then, yeah, I'm a big believer in that. Um, and I'm with my students. I'm definitely like, I push them all to do that. And, uh, you know, I mean, I also think like if you learn a tune by tab, yeah, you could probably learn 10 tunes in a week, but you'll never remember them. And if you learn a tune by year, it might, you know, it might take you a month to learn your first tune by year. That's okay. Absolutely. That's 12 songs a year that you know really well. That's a lot of tunes. 12 tunes. I think of many jams worth right there. So, yeah, it doesn't matter how long it takes. In fact, sometimes the longer it takes, the better. Like, the more time you spend on it, the more time you're actually spending, like, internalizing it. Sometimes I find if I learn a tune in, like, in 10 minutes, I actually forget it. Uh, you know, it's like better to stretch it out a little bit, really spend some time on it. The other cool thing, too, is I always try to, um, you know, I try to jot down a lot of times just for, for my own self, like I, my horrible tab, caveman tab writing. But um, <laughs> I, I, I'd like to do that only because I can I'll put the chords over it, too, because that's a great way. I mean, I'll never forget the first time when I was like learning stuff and um, it was a John Reichman tune. And I wish I could remember what it was. It was the good old person's. It was a good old person's tune. And he did this yeah. lick over a D chord in a song in A. And I I used that lick so really? much because it was the first time I was like, ah, oh, that's that. Those aren't what I would play over A, but it works perfectly over that D chord. And I'll, I'll never forget it. I'm like, yeah. oh, it's the magic of changing, you know, not just playing an A scale over a song in A. Uh, I'll, yeah. I use right. it always. <laughs> oh man, the magic of Reichman right there. Yeah. Oh, I love him. He's he's one of the best. Yeah, he's definitely someone who's big inspiration too. Yeah. 
And you actually, you had that, I should, I'll tag that. You guys had that, um, you guys did a video together, a distance video, Stony Creek. Yeah, that's one of my favorite ones to teach, just to get people into like a little F stuff, you know, a little intro into the key of F, non-open string. Well, actually, a, a good open string key, but also a good kind of close position key. So... Yeah, and that was one. That was one that I I was like, listen to it. It just sounded so good. Like I just grabbed my mandolin and just started relearning it right there. Oh, nice! And it just became one of those songs that like sticks in my head now because I, you know, I didn't pull a tab up to it. And again, I'm not poo pooing tabs. If you only have a few minutes a day to play and want to play a song, and want to use a tab to play a song, by all means. Oh yeah. Go crazy. I mean, you're still playing and making mm-hmm. music. You know, it's just for those people mm-hmm. who talk about, I, I see it a lot of times, especially on the Mandolin Cafe, you know, like, how do you retain songs? And well, the easiest way is not using the tab, I think, because then it just sticks with you a little bit easier. You know, you're not just reading it off a of paper and playing it, you're internalizing it. Yeah, there was something that was really pro, kind of the, some pretty profound music advice I got when I first went to music school. The head of the guitar department, his name is Ted Quinlan, and I asked him once, like, I was just marveling at how these jazz guys have so many standards memorized, and standards are so complex, and I was learning them all off sheet music at that time, and I, I didn't really understand how you could memorize them and all that type of thing, and I, I asked him, like, how do you memorize, like, thousands of tunes? And he said, I've never memorized a tune in my life. I know how they go, and then I play them by ear. <laughs> like, wow, I couldn't believe it, how profound it was. And I think it took me a long time to really understand what he meant. But I think learning songs by ear is the way you get to that point. It's like, you know how it goes because you've also just listening to music, listening to records of songs you like. You have to know how they go. In the same way that a non musician can hum all a lot of tunes, right? Just know how they go and then play them by ear. And it's, it's like really, I, I love things that are like simple but not easy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is the simplest advice, but like the hardest. But you know, pl- learning tunes by ears is the is the is the gateway to that, and it's a lifelong thing. You never get perfect at it. You never even maybe get good at it, but you definitely get better at it. So, and then and then the final question: Do you have a favorite beer? Well, these days it's nice outside. I'm definitely on the Modelo train. What, what was that one? Nothing makes me happier. Modelo. Oh, good yeah, man. Beer. Nothing makes me happier than a Modelo and a slice of lime when the sun is shining. Up here in Toronto, like, we have beautiful summers. They're super hot and humid and, and, and great, but they're just not that long. Like, we get a lot of non-summer up here. So the second it's, like, sunny enough to sit outside in a T-shirt, I just, like, get a case of Modelo and a bunch of limes. And there's my day right there. <laughs> That's a beautiful day right there. <laughs> that, like, almost never happens the whole day. I mean, especially... Since I just, you know, had a kid uh, a week ago, that that may never happen again. But that is something to aspire to as a good day. Absolutely, man. Well, Adrian, so much great stuff to congratulate you on, dude. This is, I mean, the, oh, the new father, the new album. Um, yeah, this is great. As uh, a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, I, I did have one person ask me. I believe I had a question. I forgot I had mentioned solicited questions somebody wanted to know when you were going to be i think maybe in new hampshire are there any um north american dates coming up for the ramblers um you know we're taking the summer is there's a lot of touring for the guys but nothing that area but in in the fall we're going to do a bunch of like northeast trends oh cool so following winter coming up um you know after i take some time off the road 
with a kid, with a newborn. I'm, I'm going to, you know, slowly get back into touring a little bit. And, um, yeah, we'll be doing some, some runs around there and, you know, into the fall and winter. So keep an eye out. Perfect, man. And I'll have all, where can everybody find you? They can find me. One of the main projects I have is the Slow Can Ramblers. We can find online, and then they can find me. I have a website, Adrian Gross, linkus.ca. But, you know, type in Adrian Gross Mansel when it comes up. And I'm on Instagram. I'm not terribly active, but I occasionally post little videos of myself playing tunes on my mantle and the mandola. They can check me out there. It's a good way to just see whatever I'm putting up. And, um, yeah, hey, I just want to congratulate you on this podcast. This has been amazing to see someone do this much for the world of mandolins in you know, in the podcast medium, which is such a perfect way to do this. And oh, yeah, man. it's just been a joy to a joy to get to know all my favorite mandolin players through this. Oh, so thanks. I dude. appreciate what you do. That really yeah. Yeah, means a lot. Thank you so much, man. Oh, you're good at it. So oh, thanks. <laughs> it's not easy to do. All right, go out and get the new Slow Can Ramblers album if you haven't already gotten it. It's fantastic. Thank you so much to Adrian for doing the podcast and thank you for listening. I really, truly appreciate it. Again, if you have a chance, head over to patreon.com, mandolins of beer, and sign up. Talk to you soon. Cheers, everybody.